open your Bibles this morning with me to Exodus 19. You might not have a Bible of your own, and so there's one there in the pew rack in front of you. And you can find our passage this morning on page 73. We're in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which tells the story of God's rescue of his people from their slavery in Egypt. It's the story of of good news, that God, by his grace, by, by the undeserved favor that he chooses to show to Israel, brings them out of slavery. We have traveled in these central chapters in Exodus with the people from Egypt to the place where they are going to worship God, to Mount Sinai. And here in Exodus 19, we finally arrive to the place where God will give his law, give them a plan to provide atoning sacrifices, set up the tabernacle that he might meet with them and be present with them. And so listen as I read the word of God. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in, the front, in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations." On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a f- smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. 
Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Let me pray that God would teach us his truth from his word. Father, we see your power on display at Sinai. And Lord, we need to understand who you are. So teach us from your word. Lord, as we encounter your power and your holiness, let us see the salvation that comes to us through Jesus, our Savior. Leave us not trapped in our sins, but let us find forgiveness through your provision. For you are a God of grace. You rescued your people Israel. You have rescued us by Jesus. So, Father, we come praying in his name. Amen. This summer, Lara, Sam, and I visited America's oldest natural history museum, the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. One of the highlights of a visit to the Academy is their giant dioramas. They're room-sized glass enclosures that put exotic animals and their native habitats on display for visitors. And as we walk through the gallery, I add my insightful commentary at each stop. I point out how the mother okapi and her calf, the forest giraffes, are, they're off-center because the naturalists intended to return back to Africa to bring back a male okapi and place it at the center of the frame, but, but alas, they were never able to find a male okapi. Or as we walk down to see the, the moose with the largest antlers of any moose in a museum anywhere in the world. But I explained, but it's really a, a Frankenstein combination of, of antlers from multiple animals because there was a museum that bested the academy, and so the academy decided to change out the antlers and make them bigger. Or how about this one? And actually, I, I learned this by going back to the website, but it's just so good, I can't, I can't resist sharing it. Kids, do you know the scientific name for the western lowland gorilla. Gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. All right, that's the kind of thing that will impress your grandparents if you, re if you repeat it to them. And it's also, I think, would be the, a, name, a good name for a band, probably pop punk band, gorilla, gorilla, gorilla. Now, Laura's looking at the same display, packs, display plaques in front of each of these exhibits as I am but she's not seeing any of the facts that I'm, I'm throwing at them. Now, I spend a lot of time trying to convince my children that I know everything about everything. But Laura, of course, knows better than that. So she says, where in the world are you getting all of this stuff from? And I said, well, actually, there was a sign at the entrance with the top 10 most interesting facts about the whole exhibit, and I just stood and read that while you and Sam looked at the first one. I, I, I just took information and said, all right, let me kind of dispense this as we go through, but I'll do so with great excitement so that you will be excited when you stand in front of Gorilla, Gorilla, Gorilla. So now that we're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, what are the facts that you and I need to be reminded of? And and these facts, they're actually, they're not complicated. I didn't have to go do a ton of research. If you just read the book of Exodus, or you pick up a Bible dictionary, 
or you search for it, you would, you would come up with these facts. But let me just remind you why Sinai, this mountain, in, in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, we're not exactly sure today which mountain it is because, well, it's important for the year that Israel is there. But, but, but Mount Sinai is the place where God met Moses in a burning bush. In Exodus 3, it was called Horeb, but it's clear in Scripture that Horeb and Sinai are synonyms. Horeb probably describing the broader range of, of area, but the mountain of Horeb is the same mountain. Because we, we read back in, in Exodus 3, God promised Moses, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain, the mountain of the burning bush. Mount Sinai is also, Horeb is the place where we saw just a couple of chapters ago in chapter 17, that God brought water from the rock. The people weren't yet camped at the foot of Sinai. They had to travel to get the water and take it back with them to camp. But it's a place of great provision where God miraculously pours forth water for the people. Now, Mount Sinai, of course, will become the location where the people get the Ten Commandments. The very next verses after where we finished in chapter 19 God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he begins the Ten Commandments. The people will spend almost a year here at Sinai, learning the commands of God, learning the fullness of his law, being given instructions on how to build the tabernacle, and then actually constructing the tabernacle, a giant tent, a place of worship where God will choose to meet with his people. But sadly, Sinai is also the place where when Moses is gone at the top of the mountain, the people will begin to wonder, maybe he's not coming back. And so they'll put their own plan in place. Hey, you've got some earrings and you've got a gold watch, so let's, let's throw that all in the furnace. And, oh, look, out came a golden calf. And so let's bow and worship this man-made object. Now, Sinai is referenced, of course, in the rest of Scripture. But there's only one other person who even makes a journey here, and it's, it's not really a pilgrimage, it's really an escape. It's the prophet Elijah. After defeating the, the, the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel back up in Israel, he is, his life is threatened by the evil king Ahab, and so he flees into the wilderness and comes to this mountain. It's an important place in the Old Testament, but it doesn't become a place of pilgrimage, and so there is no plaque at the bottom of the mountain. Well, actually, if you go today, there, there is. There's a, a monastery there, and you can travel to the top. But, but in ancient Israel, this wasn't a place of pilgrimage. They didn't return here. They remembered what God had done, but, but Sinai was never meant to be their final stop. They are on their way from Egypt where? Not to Sinai. Sinai is the place where they are meant to go to worship God. They're on their way from Egypt to the Promised Land. This is just preparation so that they will know how to live and how to worship when they get into the promised land. And in this chapter, we have, we have such a huge promise from God, a reminder of what he has done, and then a command placed upon the people. Look at, look at verses 4 through 6 of Exodus 19. Moses comes down from the mountain and is commanded to tell the people of God, in verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These words are so important that the one commentator says this is the heart of the entire Old Testament. These verses summarize for us the entire book of Exodus. They tell us what God had done to save his people and then what God expected of his people. And so first, what has God done to save his people? Well, well, he reminds them. He says, you saw what I did to Egypt, how I knocked down every one of their gods, how every time that Pharaoh's anger burned against me, I was able to crush Pharaoh and his gods. In verse 4, God uses this poetic language. I carried you on eagles' wings. I rescued you from Egypt and brought you here that you might, you might belong to me. I brought you to myself. See, it's important for us to remember that the rescue comes before the requirements. That God saves his people before he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments themselves actually remind us of that. Before we get to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, you just heard me read it. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. See, grace always comes before obedience. And that might seem like an insignificant detail that I'm, that I'm pointing out. But if you get this order wrong, then you've, you've completely misconstrued biblical faith. See, God rescued his people, and then he asked them to obey. He didn't tell them, obey, and if you get things in order, if you get your lives cleaned up, if you start worshiping me the right way, then I will come to Egypt and rescue you. No, first we see the grace of God, the power of God, the rescue of God as he carries his people on eagle's wings, and then, only after they understand his grace, does he ask them to obey to follow him, to trust in him. See, another commentator says, we must never forget that Sinai comes after the Exodus. You, you just have to remember the, the order of the chapters. You come to Sinai in the, in the middle of the book, but the rescue of God comes at the front half of the book. God rescues his people and then asks them to obey. So that obedience isn't in order to gain God's favor. Obedience flows from a heart filled with gratitude. Look at what God has done for us. God has proven that he's the only true God. A God who loved us enough to come and save us from our slavery in Egypt. Well, now I want to obey. I want to follow him. It must be grace that comes first, or we would be left in our sins. If obedience comes first, you can never do enough to redeem yourself. You can never do enough to make up for your own failures. Because this chapter shows us how, how powerful and mighty and majestic God is. How holy God is. He warns Moses in verse 9, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. I don't want the people to see who I am. Even as God reveals himself here in the Old Testament, he is, he is still concealing himself behind this dense cloud. 
He's telling them the truth, but he's saying, you can't see me as I am. I'm holy and powerful. When, when God actually arrives then in verse 16, on the morning of the third day, the description is, is horrific. There was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Verse 18, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like, a, like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Seeing God arrive was an experience that the people felt, that they saw, and they were terrified because even God hiding behind the cloud, veiling himself from the people's sight, is so powerful and so holy that for them to come near him would lead to their immediate death. Which, which sounds horrific to us. Wait, if I, if I wander off the path a little, if I ignore the warning sign that says keep out, if I step onto the foot of the mountain or my, my sheep, my flock gets loose and they go up into the lower slopes, we have to stone someone to death. We have to shoot them with arrows. We, we can't actually lay hands on them because then we too would be guilty. We have to do it from afar. I mean, that sounds horrible to us. But it's a reminder of, of God's great power that God has the right, because of my sin, to punish me for my sin. Then my continued drawing of breath is only by the grace of God. That when Adam and Eve, in the beginning of the scriptures, rebelled against God, the scriptures could have ended there, and God would have been perfectly just to bring immediate judgment. See, the holiness of God is something that, that I fear that, that the Israelites might take too lightly. I mean, even after they've consecrated themselves, even after they've seen all this, when Moses goes back up, what does God do? Hey, go back down and warn them again. Because even though they've seen this great display, they might not yet understand. See, God, in his patience with them, is being gracious to warn them multiple times. Because they've already seen God's power, and they've been quick to forget. God's holiness is on display here. So that Mount Sinai becomes like the holy of holies. When the people are, are given instructions to build this, this giant tabernacle, this tent, it's in sections, so that the, 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 the innermost portion of this sanctuary is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant will be kept, where the Ten Commandments will be stored, where the, the, the staff of Aaron will be kept there. But no one is allowed to enter into the presence of God in this holiest of holy places except the high priest, and only then at the command of God on one day a year, and only after he brings sacrifice for his sins and the sins of the people. And yet when God first reveals himself, before the, the tabernacle is built, all of Mount Sinai is the holy of holies. So to step into the direct presence of God as a sinner would bring judgment and death upon us. Because God is, as the scriptures reveal to us, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. He is the only God to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. The apostle Paul continues in 1 Timothy that God is the blessed and only ruler. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. He alone is immortal. He lives in unapproachable light. 
whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and glory and might forever. Exodus 19 shows us the majesty and power of God. You and I do not have the right to draw near to him. It wouldn't matter if we could turn the page and say, but I'll keep all ten of those commandments. From right now, through the rest of my life, I will keep them perfectly in thought, in word, in deed, in attitudes and actions. I will do everything that you expect of me. Even then, I'm already guilty, let alone the foolishness of attempting to keep these commands, of keeping God, the Lord, alone in my heart and life. See, we can only come to God through the sacrifice that he provides. For the Old Testament people, he will provide a a plan of sacrifice leading them to put their trust and hope in Jesus Christ. See, only because Jesus gave his life for us can we approach God in his holiness and majesty. When we turn to the New Testament, the, the book of Hebrews, it contrasts Mount Sinai, the place where Israel received the law, with the promise that God makes that everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will get to go to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Not merely the Mount Zion in physical, earthly Jerusalem, but but in heaven. And the only way to get from Mount Sinai, where God lays his commands upon us, and we in our guilt are exposed as sinners, the only way to get from Mount Sinai to glory is through the sacrifice of Christ. Listen to the way that the, the, the book of Hebrews describes it. This is Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18. Speaking to Christians, Hebrews tells us, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now that first quotation of of the the death that would come comes from our passage, Exodus 19. The the later words come from a, a later encounter that Moses had with God at Sinai. So you haven't come to Mount Sinai. What what Hebrews continues, Hebrews 12, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So you can only get from Mount Sinai, where the power and majesty of glory of God are revealed, where death would be the outcome, you can only get from there to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city where God lives, where his light shines, where you are in his presence. You can only get there through the death of Christ, the Savior, the mediator of God's new covenant. And so today, as you see your sin exposed in the book of Exodus, as you hear the the sound of the thunder and watch the lightning, as you hear the trumpet blast and you feel the fear of the people, do you understand the depth of your sin?
Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Because God is the holy God, but he is the God who rescued his people. And so that tells us who God is, but, but this passage, of course, prepares us for what we are to do, how the people are meant to respond. Because God, in verse 4, says, I brought you out of Egypt, but in verse 5, he, he places a command on them. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that God has willingly entered into a relationship with us, it's his covenant. He has the right to, to command us to obey him. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. We belong to God. And so the people, when they hear this command, they, they, in verse 8, they say, we'll do it. Everything that God wants, we'll do it. Which sounds initially like the, a foolish kind of statement to make. You people haven't, you haven't made it a, even a couple of months since the time of the Exodus in faithful obedience, and yet you're going you're gonna to right now promise we're going to do everything that God says. Of, but of course, that's the only answer that you could possibly give in this moment. Any other answer to turn and run, to give up and say, God, we just can't do it. They, they are throwing themselves upon the grace and mercy of God when they say, we'll do everything God has said. Because God demands exclusive loyalty, unconditional obedience to his voice in every part of our lives. God, God tells the people they have to consecrate themselves. They have to set themselves apart. They have to make themselves holy. They're, they're commanded to wash their clothes, to, to sort of symbolically show the cleansing outwardly that they really need inwardly in their hearts. They're told to stay off the mountain because it's holy ground. Verse 15 then adds the, the command from Moses that they are to abstain from sexual relations temporarily for these spiritual reasons to be ready to meet with God. See, but, but we don't like anybody telling us what to do. See, I, I don't think we'd be willing to say with the people in verse 8, all right, God, we'll do whatever you say. We're offended by God's holiness. Not because it shows our sinfulness. We're just offended by the very idea that someone would think he has the right to tell us what to do. We're not only offended by God's specific laws, like when you turn the page and you should not miss the, use the name of the Lord your God, you should not commit adultery, you shall not steal. We're not only offended by specific laws, we're offended by the very idea that God thinks he has the right to tell us anything about how we should live. We're offended by the very idea of any command having authority over us. And yet what God is saying here is the whole earth belongs to him. Everyone everywhere is his. He's the God of the universe, and so he has the right to tell us how to live. But even God's commands show his compassion. God doesn't want his people just sort of stumbling through and, and trying to figure out, hey, what was it that God wanted us to do today? How are we supposed to worship him? No, he gives specific instructions so that the people will be freed from worry of how do, how do I know how to worship a holy God? Well, God will tell you. How do I know how, how I should live having only heard the, the commands of, of Egypt and Egyptian gods? How would I know how to live following after the true God? Well, God will explain it to you. And he'll do it in a way that is for your good, for your flourishing, for your freedom 
That if you can follow God's commands, then you'll live as, as he wanted you to, as you were made to live. So God's commands are gracious to us. But his commands are not only for our good, they are for the blessing of others. Because think of the, the description that God gives in verses 5 and 6 of, of who Israel is meant to be. God has chosen them not because they were good, not because they were great, not because they were numerous, the scriptures tell us. God chose them by his own plan, because of his own mercy, because of his own purpose. But he says in verse 5, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. That's the language of the king's treasury, under his exclusive control, something that belongs directly to the king. Israel is God's. They are meant, in verse 6, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's not meant to turn them inward into worshiping God and keeping other people on the outside. No, that description that they are meant to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, is so that the other nations will see what God has done. Remember, that's been a theme in the book of Exodus. Every time God's power is displayed, it's so that others will see and respond. They are meant, like Adam and Eve, before they sinned against God, to be God's representatives in all of creation. With direct access to God, like a priest can enter the Holy of Holies. They are meant to be a kingdom of people who have met God and then can mediate on behalf of other nations. They are meant to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham when he first chose the people of Israel. God told Abraham back in Genesis 12, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. But that blessing wasn't meant to stop with Abraham. Just as the people aren't meant to stop at Sinai, but continue on. The, the blessing was meant to continue through Abraham because God made the promise, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And how is God going to do that? Through this nation. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation that show the world who God is. Israel is obligated to be God's representatives. It's not as if God just threw together some commands and said, well, you know, I just want to see if you'll obey. So here are a bunch of rules. And No, these are rules meant for their good. Rules that are meant to set them apart so that others would see who God is. So when we get to Exodus 19 and see the power of God, then we understand our sin. But we also see our need for a mediator to make us right with God so that the world will know who God is and will know how to respond to his grace. We are God's treasured possession to be used to bless the world. By any measure, Skinner was a dead man. Another pastor captures the story of Arthur Bressy. Arthur tells the story of the day he found his best friend in a World War II Japanese concentration camp. The two were best friends from childhood. Playing ball together, they grew up in Mount Carmel, PA, skipping school, double dating. And so when one of them joined the army, well then of course the other was bound to join up as well. They rode the same troop ship to the Philippines. And that's where they were separated. Skinner was on baton when it fell to the Japanese in 1942, and Arthur Bressy was captured a month later. Through the prison grapevine, Arthur learned the whereabouts of his friend. He heard that Skinner was near death in a camp close by. 
So Arthur volunteered for work detail in hopes that his detail would, would bring him past the other camp. Finally, one day, he's in sight of the camp. He, he asks for just five minutes to stop. And he's given permission, and, 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 and he's told, well, you've got to go to that side of the camp, the sick side of the camp. The camp was divided in half. One half for those that, well, they expect to die, and the other half for those that, that can still work. Those expected to die lived in barracks called Zero Ward. And that's where Arthur found his friend Skinner. He called his name, and out of the barracks walked the 79-pound shadow of the friend he had known. Arthur writes, I stood at the wire fence of the Japanese prisoner of war camp on Luzon and watched my childhood buddy caked in filth and racked with the pain of multiple diseases totter toward me. He was already dead. Only his boisterous spirit hadn't left his body. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. His blue eyes, watery and dulled, locked on me and wouldn't let me go. Malaria, amoebic dysentery, scurvy. Skinner's body was a dormitory for tropical diseases he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, he was nearly gone. And Arthur didn't know what to say or do. His, his time at the fence was, was nearly up, and so, so he fiddled with the, the knot in the handkerchief around his neck, and he, he remembered. He had smuggled into camp one possession, at risk to himself, but, but knowing that the disease and sickness were, were imminent, he had brought in his high school class ring, hoping that he could save it to barter for medicine or food when he was near death. But one look at his friend Skinner, and he knew he couldn't save it any longer. So he passed it through the fence and, and told his friend to wheel and deal, to, to do whatever he could to try and get, get some help. Skinner objected, but, but Arthur insisted. And so Skinner hid the, the ring that night, but, but brought it out the next day and, and risked going to the kindest of the guards with the ring. The guard asked, is it valuable? Yes. And so he handed it over. A few days later, the guard walked past Skinner and let a packet drop at his feet. Sulfalidamide tablets. A day later, he came with limes to combat the scurvy. Then came a new pair of pants and, a, and some canned beef. Within three weeks, Skinner was on his feet. Within three months, he was strong enough to work again. As far as Skinner knew, he was the only American POW ever to leave Zero Ward alive. All because of a ring. His buddy's treasured possession given for him. See, you and I, you and I have received grace from God where Jesus the Savior stepped in and took our place. He died so that we might live. God calls us the church. Everyone who believes in him, he calls us his treasured possession. But not an ornament that he can wear to just display his greatness, 
We're a treasured possession meant to be used for the good and the blessing of others. We belong to God because of his grace. We're meant to bless the world, to make the gospel known, to obey God with joy, to display his glory. The the scriptures tell us, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word shows us who you are. That we might rightly understand our place and relationship to you. God, we thank you for your kindness in revealing to us our sin. That we might turn from sin and find find salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, we're saved not because of our goodness, not because of anything we can accomplish on our own. We are saved by your grace and your mercy. Father, I pray for those that listen to your word today, those that will listen online to the reading and teaching of your word. Lord, that you would grant faith to those who hear this word, that they might believe. Father, and for those of us that belong to you, use us as your treasured possession that the world might see your greatness and your glory. God, that that others would see that you are the God who provides for our deepest needs. You have called us to yourself. You gave Jesus, your son, to die in our place. And so we come to give you praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior who has been raised from the dead. Amen.